0: Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York. And this week, I'm joined by the one and only, thank goodness she has so much to say about sports, Smarty Pants, Lindsay Gibbs, a freelance sports reporter in D.C. Hi, Linz. How you doing?
1: Hi, Bren. I'm happy to be here with you. Today. <laughs> I'm
0: happy to be here with you too, though we'll miss our co hosts. I feel like we have plenty to talk about.
1: I do. I hope they don't regret leaving us alone to steer the <laughs> ship, but you know, whatever.
0: <laughs> I know we're going to run amok. Listen, this week we're going to talk about recent revelations in football, including very troubling cases at Michigan State and within the NFL, specifically Antonio Brown. Also, Jessica interviews two people associated with the new documentary about girls and women's baseball titled Hardball, the Girls of Summer. She'll talk with Jewel Greenberg, a producer of the film and veteran U.S. Women's National Team player featured in the documentary, Malika Underwood. Then we'll talk about sports stories that Basically, Lindsay and I are into this week, but we don't think enough of you are, or maybe. <laughs> We're going to burn some things that are garbage in sport and celebrate women's badassery. But before all that, I do want to ask you, Lindsay, because I've noticed you're just a little bit busy with the WNBA playoffs. How you feeling?
1: Ooh, it is so much fun. So we are recording this on Sunday morning. So Game threes will be later today. By the time you all listen, we will know the outcome of those. Um, so I'm not gonna get much into analysis right now, though. Connecticut and Washington, uh, the top two seeds are looking really good. They're both up two nothing over uh the Las Vegas Aces for in so Washington's up 2-0 over the Las Vegas Aces, Connecticut is up 2-0 over Los Angeles Sparks. And now both of those series are moving from the East Coast to the West Coast. So tonight, Vegas will host their first game and Los Angeles will host its first game. So I'm, I'm really excited. It's been, there have been some really close games so far, but also we've, you know, kind of seen the favorites win. And I would like to see some of these series, you know, get a little bit more competitive. I do think that the best of five when the home team wins the first two, it's, It's a a long way back for the road team. But, you know, I think uh, there's just been so much good stuff. And I think no matter what, we're going to have a really, really intriguing final. And look, you know, I'm here in D.C., so I've been at both of the games this week. And they've been so good. I got to be there when Elaine Deladon won her MVP award, which I can talk about a little bit later. But, yeah, it's been a great week. I am thrilled for the action. And stay tuned for... Another, I think we might do some sort of finals preview for our Patreon subscribers. That might be our Patreon only episode this week. So just kind of stay tuned to our feeds for all of that.
0: And do you think like, do you think, I saw the letter that Bill Lambeer, the coach of the Aces, right, sent to the Las Vegas community about women's
1: basketball. Yes, yeah, so we are going to talk about that a little bit later in this program, Brenda. So thank you for the teaser. <laughs> I'm sorry, but
0: I can just never get enough of talking about Bill Lambier, who I find such a weird, <laughs> weird presence in my life, being from Detroit and growing up with him. During the did you
1: read war, the yeah. oral history thing? I did. I had to. Did do I a read it? I loved it.
0: <laughs> If anybody hasn't seen it, the best brawl in WNBA history. So Bill Lambert has literally like ruined the peaceful nature of basketball if there ever was such a thing in both men's and women's basketball.
1: <laughs> He's right at the center of it all. So, sorry, I'm doing a little self-plug here. But I wrote a piece for Deadspin that was the oral history of the 2008 Shock Sparks brawl. And Brenda has been – I've honestly been working on this for a year because I'm slow and miss deadlines. But Brenda has been begging to read this because it's got Bill Lambier quotes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the only thing – she cares about
0: the one love thing that him. I didn't love about that article, and I love everything about that article is that you don't actually say if there was a winner. You never in the fight, yes. Like, I want I, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of felt like you should just come down on one side or another. Like, who actually it was just.
1: It was just a brawl. I I don't know if there are winners in a brawl. There
0: are definitely winners in a brawl. I think
1: the WNBA was the winner, honestly. (laughs) 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 You know who's the winner? Nancy Lieberman.
0: (laughs) All right. Moving on. So for our next segment, unfortunately, we have to revisit a very familiar topic here on Burn It All Down, which is the ways in which in sporting institutions protect and enable, how would we say, protect perpetrators, enable perpetrators of sexual violence. And this week, we're going to start with Antonio Brown's case.
1: Lindsay? Yeah, so... There's so much here. (laughs) I feel like I should be transparent. a lot. I should feel like I should be transparent and say this is take two of this because so much more news came out after we recorded this morning that we're doing this again because there's just a lot here. I do want to give, I know all of our listeners don't follow the NFL, so a very brief kind of background onto who Antonio Brown is because I do feel like it's kind of important context. So he's a very good wide receiver in the NFL, you know, seven time Pro Bowl wide receiver. Uh, He was with the Pittsburgh Steelers his entire career. And then during had a lot of drama over the last year with the Steelers, requested a trade during the offseason and ended up getting traded to the Oakland Raiders. He was with the Oakland Raiders. For the summer. And that was filled with a lot of controversy as well. We're talking, um, his feet were frostbitten because he didn't wear proper footwear during a cryotherapy session. There was a helmet issue where he didn't want to switch helmets to one of the ones that the NFL approved to be safer than other helmets, which that's a whole other conversation. (laughs) You know, there were altercations with the coaches. He ended up getting out of, being released from the Raiders, and that very same day, he was picked up by the Patriots. This was all September 7th, so just a few weeks ago. Brown agreed to a one-year contract with the New England Patriots. Some people assume that he actually... Forced his way out, that this was a little bit him getting control of his career because he probably wouldn't have been able to be traded to the Patriots. So, you know, by being released from the Raiders, he was able to sign where he wanted. But anyway, so this was September 7th, and on September 10th, a civil lawsuit was filed by Brittany Taylor, who was a his former athletic trainer. So she filed a civil lawsuit claiming that he had raped her three times. Um, Brown and his legal team have denied this. Taylor, this is just a civil suit, not a criminal suit, and she's cooperating with the NFL. Well, on September 16th, so he played last weekend for the Patriots. He stayed on board. Um, The Patriots really didn't want to talk about it, which I know, I think that's the first thing we're going to go to. Um, But then on September 16th, Reporting by Robert Klimko of the Sports Illustrated, who has just done a phenomenal job on this story, he reported that there was a second woman who had accused Brown of sexual misconduct. She was an artist who said that she was that Brown had commissioned her to paint something at his home, and a while she was painting himself,
0: I just want oh, to throw oh, thank you. Out. That is really important. Thank you. It really is. It really, it really is. is. It's clutch in this story.
1: And so, as she was doing this, he stood behind her, fully naked. Holding nothing but a small towel over his, you know, wear. So, this is obviously really disturbing. And essentially, what happened is that was released about Monday of last week. And then a couple days later, it was released that Brown had been sending harassing text messages to the artist who had accused him of sexual misconduct and these included there was a group text message that he included her on and he was encouraging people to look up how broke she was and to and he was including pictures of her children in these text messages so these were re- these became public Clemco um, got them the NFL got them and eventually on Friday two days later the Patriots released him so he did not play for the Patriots on on Sunday, which is the day we're recording this, but he did make some news. <laughs> he sent out some text messages this afternoon or this morning, and They were essentially announcing that he was done with the NFL. They were pointing out some of the NFL's hypocrisy in past incidences of sexual assault, um, pointing out that Shannon Sharp, who is, you know, a big analyst for the NFL and a former NFL star, that he was accused of sexual harassment, but received a very light suspension. He, of course, pointed out that Ben Roethlisberger, his former quarterback, had been accused of rape. And he also brought up Robert Kraft and the... Listing of sex work that, you know, Robert Kraft was involved in earlier this year. And all of this was kind of part of his, I guess, saying everybody is hypocritical. I don't know. We can talk about what exactly his point is with this, but to me, the most disturbing thing he did was he sent out a tweet from the Daily Beast that was pointing that was about the harassment that Robert Klimko, the sports illustrated, Writer was getting, so then think the tweet was a headline from the Daily Beast saying, you know, you know, Sports Illustrated writer getting attacked by Patriots fans and getting death threats by Patriots fans over Antonio Brown reporting, and Brown quote tweeted that and said, "The system is working how it's designed." Whatever does
0: that mean? I mean, yes, it is. It's designed to protect men in power. <laughs> but does he? What does he? I don't know. I so, know. I know.
1: Okay, can we first so let's we're, we're trying to break this down to the enabling part okay. of it. So let let's go back. I know that we had talked offline a little bit about the way Bill Belichick and the Patriots handled this from the get go. And I know we are both People don't think this, but we're all on the side of, you know, making informed decisions about all this stuff, you know, not rushing to, to judgment. But what frustrated me about the Patriots having Antonio Brown on their roster for what, like 10 days or whatever it was, was how annoyed they seemed whenever anyone asked about him and how it seemed like they were acting like it was nobody's business, <laughs> which is just uh, infuriating.
0: It's really infuriating. I mean, I, I was one of the people that was really kind of interested in Antonio Brown, you know, wanting to get into a fight with Ben Roethlisberger is something I kind of want to do too. <laughs> he has done some really awful things off of the field, regardless of what he's convicted of. We know that. But then to throw all that out there as some sort of defense is really awful and terrifying. And I can't imagine it for victims. And then For Belichick just to act, and I don't know how much he knew, but I do have to like question. The Patriots are not a poor organization; they're not an organization that can't look into these things. I I don't know that they did, but in any case, it's not crazy to think that they have some sort of vetting that's happening that pick up things and that there's clearly issues going on. And if a reporter asked about it, the fact that Bill Belichick thinks that he doesn't need to answer something that it's not serious enough, like, isn't it serious enough? Aren't those women, you, you know, his, his trainer saying that he raped her three times.
1: And here's the thing. Like if you think the guy's talent is big enough to put up with this, you still have to put up with it, right? Like, this is part of putting up with it, is standing there and answering the questions. If you're not willing to do that, then you don't get to benefit from his talent. That's just how I feel. You know what I mean? Like, like the literal least you can do, Bill Belichick, is stand up there and answer questions. If this is the way your organization, if this is a decision your organization wants or to make. Or
0: at the very least, talk about it plaguing sports, at the very least, be like, we know this is a problem. We know this has happened. We're very aware. We're very concerned. At least like, look like you give a fuck. I mean, just to pretend that you're above it, is, it, it's just like, it's one thing to protect him. And then I just felt like it was on top of it, you know, extra arrogance and extra added violence to these women coming forward that he was just like, yeah, whatever. I don't have to answer that. And you know it it just looked to me like classic sort of i just just men knowing that they don't have to that no one's gonna he's totally not accountable Bill Belichick will never be held accountable for this stuff, or any men in that no. position, not just him, whoever holds that no position. and look
1: all the patriots today, the players. And look, I mean, I feel bad for the other players in this, this situation, but there were a lot who were talking just a week ago about how much they liked Antonio Brown as a person, right? And supported him as a teammate. And now, after everything that happened today, nobody would talk about Antonio Brown in the locker room, you know? Um, they just looped him in as a distraction. And that's that's just frustrating. I'm just, just very frustrated by that. And I think the system... The most frustrating is Antonio Brown is actually right about so many things. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. The system of is completely broken. Yeah. These people are hypocritical. Yes. That's the word that yes. exists. You know, these people are complete hypocrites. Like, absolutely, it's ridiculous that, you know, Ben Roethlisberger and, you know, Shannon Sharp and all these players have gotten away with, with this stuff and that it's just looped into this big crowd of distractions, do you know what I mean, or things to overcome. But Antonio what Antonio Brown is somehow not realizing is that he's benefiting from that system too, right? And that if he had just been quiet, like not basically if he had not sent those threatening text messages, he probably could have gotten away from continuing to benefit from that system yeah
0: i mean speaking of sort of institutions one thing to think about too is that the professional professional football is that sort of culture starts much earlier and we see it in college football this leads us to another case of institutions protecting this culture of violence against women and it starts at the college level. So this week, we have another case involving Michigan State, because we know it's not just one aspect of a program and an institution. It, it has poisoned the entire place. Can you give
1: us a recap of what happened? I would love to. You know, talking about Michigan State is my favorite thing. So Michigan State uh, football head coach Mark D'Antonio was been in the news over the past few days, not just for winning his 110th football game at Michigan State and becoming the winningest football coach in Michigan State history. But because this week it came out in a court filing, in a deposition, during a case that's been brought by former Michigan State staffer, Curtis Blackwell. So Blackwell has said under oath that three football team staffers warned D'Antonio about serious potential issues with a four-star recruit, Austin Robertson, before the program signed him in 2016. To the point where one of the other coaches, one of the other football team staffers, told D'Antonio, I have a daughter on campus and I wouldn't feel comfortable with Austin Robertson Being on campus with my daughter. Of course, he's saying this because you know Robertson had already been in the news for sexual assault and abusing women. But D'Antonio signed him anyways, gave him a scholarship, and then in 2017, Robertson was charged with third-degree criminal sexual conduct after a woman said he sexually assaulted her. He pled guilty, and he is currently serving his sentence in a state prison. So this is really reminiscent from a lot of the stuff that we saw happen at Baylor. Although in Baylor, you know, we don't know if the football staffers, you know, gave warnings. But, you know, we saw um, Art Bryles bring in troubled, you know, troubled athletes from other programs. And then they would come to Baylor and commit crimes and uh, commit rapes on campus. Men who there were already warning signs against. So, yeah, Brenda, as an alum, how do you feel about this news?
0: I feel disgusted and ashamed, but I have for quite some time. I mean, after Nasser, it's really and John Engler, and oh man, it's hard. I grew up with, you know, all of the Michigan State trimmings. It's a, a big part of I think a certain working class identity in Michigan. It's where a lot of auto workers, kids like like myself and families went. Versus U of M, which was kind of identified as a as a little bit more well healed. It's in Ann Arbor, a lot of out-of-state kids. And so I felt really strongly growing up about going to Michigan State. You know, I mean, there's scarves. Like, my mom's license plate still has it on. And I have to tell you, when I see it, I feel grossed out. I Since Nasser and this just sort of, it's one thing after another, whether it's Izzo apologizing for the conduct of Michigan State in the sense that he just thought, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal or whether they're asking to raise money but not for NASA victims or in whatever way they're indicating that they don't care. It is disgusting. And did we also mention D'Antonio possibly firing his assistant for telling as a sort of fall guy about Robertson?
1: Yeah, you, you tell that part so, of the story because that's
0: that's important. So the here. other part of the story that's still developing is that there is an assistant. I can't remember his first name, Blackwell? Curtis,
1: Curtis Blackwell. Blackwell. So that's the person who's, that's the case. This is this that is, case that I was just saying. This is the case, so, right.
0: Okay, yeah. I'm sorry. There's yeah. so much I'm like processing as you're saying. Yeah, things.
1: no, it, so this information about them telling, this information that he yeah. knew came that he was told by his staffers. This came out during depositions for Curtis okay, Blackwell. Right. Case. And and
0: so then yeah. it seemed as though they tried to blame Blackwell and they fired him as a sort of yeah. show. And now Blackwell is suing for unrightful firing or whatever, whatever you call that, right? Unlawful that termination, one. I think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Exactly. And we should mention though that like D'Antonio has a very long history of players with violent pasts. So, Robertson was not the only one. Four of his players, including Robertson, were dismissed in 2017 because of two separate sexual assault cases. So, and then, if you remember, in 2009, his players assaulted members of the hockey team in a dormitory after their banquet so much so that a member of the hockey team had a fractured skull. Nine of his players were charged with assault. Two of them were thrown off the team, and then one was reinstated. And the, the I looked this up because I was having trouble remembering it, because 2009 is like, hey, that's a decade ago, but hey, this is the same guy, same program. The hockey player who had a fractured skull said at the time that he had reinstated the players, quote, In my opinion, the immediate reinstatement of Glenn Winston to the football team reflects very poorly on Michigan State Athletics. This decision has established weak precedent for future athletes involved in violent crimes. While victims of his actions still recover from what he did, Winston's obligations have been deemed fulfilled by the football program and the athletic department, end of quote. So like, wow, reason reason you know the the person who had been beaten was like look this is gonna happen again it's gonna happen again because you're showing that you don't take it seriously and you don't care and in this case it was an assault against another man we know that men can be victims of things but it is a toxic masculinity culture and i can't really watch michigan state athletics and i can't really watch much college football to be honest
1: yeah. And I mean, I think like it's important to once again say like this is all happening under the guise of, you know, under at the same time that, you know, we are having case after case come out still against NASA. We are having the trustees shut down investigations still into Nassar. One of my last pieces at Think Progress was called It's Not Just Larry or Michigan State University Has a Problem with Rape Culture. And it was looking at just like three big incidents within the past two weeks. These are like the last two weeks of August that were all just like horrifying. And of course, that doesn't include any of the Antonia stuff, right? Like I didn't even get to that. Like, and, you know, basically, I don't even know what to say anymore. It's just so frustrating. And look, we have to bring up race in all of this, right? Because at the end of the day, like Curtis Blackwell is black and a lot most of these players are black and you know D'Antoni was D'Antonio was more I keep getting his name in the Houston GM I keep like merging their names but they're very similar in my defense so you know D'Antonio is white and he seemed more than willing to throw this young black man under the bus for the enabling that he himself did and for the danger that he himself put women in campus in And that's just, you know, that too is infuriating. And I'm reminded, especially when we're talking about race, and we're talking about the way that individuals who outside of the system are very marginalized, once they're dwarfed into this system of high powered athletics, because of the way the system works, they benefit from that power structure in ways that make this all really hard to talk about. I think about that with Antonio Brown a lot too, right? You can't overlook the fact that like this is an, Outspoken black man in a world where white men just want to control these, you know, uh, younger black men and make them conform and be quiet, and
0: and that was central, I think, to his choice of people to tweet out as hypocrites. Because there's a lot. So, I mean, that's the thing that's so awful about it is what he did seems so absolutely inexcusable. Same time point taken that men of color are dehumanized and exploited in this system.
1: Yeah. And so that's, that's exactly right. And I think like you, you have to be able to have both of them and it can become a tough conversation. I'm going to end by quoting Diana Moskovitz, who I thought did a good job kind of wrestling with a lot of these conflicts in a story she wrote on Deadspin called Antonio Brown and the conversation nobody wants to have so she one is her kind of talking about this power so she said it can be difficult to talk about athletes within a framework of power because they are in America an exploited workforce they aren't paid in high school they aren't paid in college and even as professionals except for a handful of superstars their careers are short their bodies left battered and their job security is tenuous at best but when a person accuses a player of violence it is the player who suddenly has the power because the billionaire team owners and multimillionaire executives will back them then filter their support to chosen reporters all while hordes of fans do the same out of team loyalty. So that made me think a lot of, you know, the abuse that Robert Klimko is receiving right now, right? And it's all from Patriots fans. And the Lansing State Journal reporters who've been doing so good covering this, D'Anton- you know, the Michigan State stuff, they are just hounded by Michigan State fans. And the way that fandom and media work also as ways to uphold these uh, systems of power can be really disturbing. I mean, you see already like Agents tweeting out, you know, or, or you would see like last Sunday on the football field when Antonio Brown was playing, you know, you would have reporters tweeting out his every move, every cheer that was happening, and just like really centering him in the narrative in this, you know, uncomfortable way. And finally, I just want to quote Diana, and this will be the end of this, but I think this really sums up Burn It All Down, too. So she says, one of the problems here is that American athletics is set up to tell the stories of men. The Sunday pregame panels are dominated by men. The game announcers are dominated by men. The postgame analysis is mostly done by men. The leagues are mostly run by men. The team owners are almost all men. These are men telling stories about men for other men. And yeah, that's where we are.
0: Next, Jessica interviews two people from the new documentary about girls and women's baseball titled Hardball, The Girls of Summer. Joining
2: us is Jewel Greenberg and Malaika Underwood. Listeners to this podcast probably know that over the last two years, I've covered girls and women's baseball, including going to the Women's Baseball World Cup last year when it was hosted in Florida. So today, I'm very excited to welcome Jewel Greenberg and Malaika Underwood to Burn It All Down. Jewel Greenberg is the producer of a new documentary called Hardball, the Girls of Summer, which follows five women of the U.S. Women's National Baseball Team as they battled for recognition and a gold medal in the Women's Baseball World Cup in South Korea in 2016. One of those players was Malika Underwood, who has won two gold medals with Team USA at the 2006 Women's Baseball World Cup and the 2015 Pan Am Games. She has played on the national team nine times which is a record in USA Baseball. Thank you both for being here today. Thank you. So Jewel, let's start with you. Can you just give our listeners like your elevator pitch of the documentary?
3: Sure, sure. Uh, So Hardball the Girls of Summer takes us inside the world of contemporary women's baseball. And we look at the development of programming for girls and women, mainly within the U.S., but we also look at some international programs as well.
2: Jewel, how did you get involved with this project? Sure.
3: So the director, Matthew Temple, and I have a mutual friend, and she knew he was looking for a producer for this baseball project that he'd been toying with for a little bit and put us in touch, and we hit it off. And what was really interesting is that Matthew's original seed of this film came out of his role as a father to girls that played baseball. So Mm. I think all of his daughters played baseball. And as they were getting older and starting to kind of age out of Little League, uh, he didn't understand why there were so few girls playing baseball. And he started to look into it. And as a filmmaker had the idea that this is a story he wanted to tell to support girls playing the sport. And when our friend Jessa put Matthew and I in touch, part of the reason we hit it off is that my stepdaughter is also a baseball player and she was Ah. still in little league at that time. She's now 14. So she's out of little league, but as a, you know, as a parent, he and I both have seen a little bit of that struggle that girls go through and wanted to do what we could to support them.
2: Yeah. I find it such a compelling and interesting story. That's why Mm -hmm. I've been drawn to it. Malika, how did you first get into playing baseball?
4: Well, just like Matthew's daughters and Jules' stepdaughter, I started in Little League. I grew up in Southern California, and that's just what everybody did. And so I was drawn to the sport at a very young age, enjoyed playing it. And you know, in, in, at the t-ball level, there were plenty of other girls playing on the field, but over time, there were fewer and fewer. And I just decided to stick with it. I played through Little League, and then I also played high school baseball, Uh, But Hmm. as you can see in the film, uh, there are not a lot of opportunities beyond that. And uh, ultimately, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity to play volleyball at the University of North Carolina and get a scholarship to do that. Uh, But I missed baseball. And then eventually, I started looking around and stumbled on the fact that the USA Baseball Women's National Team was hosting open tryouts in 2006. And I jumped on it and haven't looked back since.
2: So that was going to be one of my questions of sort of how you went from volleyball back to baseball, because a lot of players, my understanding is that they end up playing softball on the collegiate level, because that's where scholarships are. But you did volleyball, and then you found baseball. So you literally just stumbled back on it?
4: well so there was some pressure to switch to softball in high school but because mm-hmm. i was playing other sports volleyball and and basketball as well and i was doing well in both of those sports and started to to get interest from colleges that pressure was alleviated a bit. And I was fortunate in that sense, because it allowed me to have the freedom to play baseball. And then when I was in college, you know, I missed the game, even when I was playing volleyball. And so I found ways to stay close to it. I coached a little league team while I was in Chapel Hill, uh, and really enjoyed doing that. But ultimately, when I when my playing career on the volleyball court was over, I started to look for opportunities and googled it and it <laughs> it popped up and I I found my way down I think it was in Fort Myers Florida at the time the the regional tryout that was closest to me and so I went down there and um, kept making the cuts and and uh, like I said I haven't looked back since it's been a it's been a great ride on the women's national team
2: yeah you've had a really long career with them I wanted to ask you one of the things that you all talk about in the documentary that they cover in the documentary is different kinds of difficulties. So certainly being the only girl on a team and sort of isolation and stuff. There's also, and I found this when I interviewed girls who play baseball, like they get hit by the ball (laughs) more often. What kind of difficulties did you find being the only girl or only woman on a baseball team, Malika?
4: There's certainly some isolation to it, but at the same time, I think you'll find for a lot of girls, there is support there is support right there's There's family, there's friends, there's supportive coaches and teammates. That doesn't mean mm. that there aren't challenges and you know getting hit by a pitch or having the dugout of the opposing team you know yell things that they shouldn't be yelling at you mm. that that kind of stuff happens but but I think that in general at least my experience and I know I know it's different for everyone, there, there are supportive people out there who will back you and support you through the journey of of playing baseball and sort of carving out your own path.
2: Did you have a sense when you were younger that there was a history of women playing baseball that like you were part of a longer trajectory and than just you on this team? That's a
4: really interesting question. I was fortunate to be in high school in the nineties and There were the Silver Bullets, who were an all-women's team who were barnstorming and playing other minor league teams. And I got to see them live and actually ended up playing with some of them in the early years of the the USA Baseball Women's National Team. And then also Isla Borders at the time was doing her thing Mm -hmm. in the minor leagues. And so I had uh, role models to look up to. I don't think I fully appreciated the history of women in baseball uh, until much later But certainly having those role models was an important thing for me. It kept me motivated and focused and open to the idea that I could still play the game, even if there were only a few of us playing.
2: Yeah. Wow. That's good to know. Isla Borders, there's a, she has a memoir. It's very good. Yeah. Jewel, one of the things you do really well, I think, in the documentary is tracing this history. I even like the visual of the actual timeline. <laughs> like I found that <laughs> yeah. really useful. And I wanted to talk, I wanted to ask you guys, and I know on some level, I think this is a simple answer, but there's such an intense gender segregation in the sport. And you guys obviously cover this in the history, but I feel like I even hear more about girls playing tackle football than I do about them playing baseball. Why do you think we are so resistant as a culture or society to girls playing baseball?
3: It's such a good question, Jessica. And it's really, you know, something we've talked about with a lot of people and nobody really has an answer. You know, (laughs) like there, there is this idea that, you know, Little League begins to funnel girls to softball. And that over time, that's really become sort of a cultural form of pressure in a lot of ways, you know, not because Little League is, is putting the pressure on people, because people have this idea now that softball is for girls and baseball is for boys. And I think it just it's just going to take individuals deciding to support the the girls in their life. You know, we talked to Matt Weagle, who's one of the pitching coaches for the women's national team or was when we were shooting in 2016. And, you know, he has a daughter. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's going to take these father daughter relationships, like also that that we see with um, Kelsey Whitmore and her dad, Scott, in the film, right. where a dad supports that, that kid and says, Yeah, we can go play catch in the backyard. You want to play baseball, I'm going to go to bat for you with this team that you want to play with,
4: you know, and, and stand up for you. And it, I think it takes that kind of support. You know, what's interesting is that this idea that baseball is masculine really goes back a long time. Now, there Mm. are are points along the historical timeline and the creation of Little League softball right at the same time when Little League baseball was being forced to let girls play, legally let girls play, is one of those points. But even before that, even before the league of their own, the All-American Girls Baseball League that happened in the 40s and 50s there were people who were saying that women shouldn't play baseball and so i think i think it's really de- there are really deep roots to that idea and i think it's going to take time and a lot of awareness and i do think the the father daughter relationship baseball player mm-hmm. dads being open to the idea mm-hmm. of their daughters playing is is going to be a big piece of that mm-hmm. but we have to kind of face the fact that it is it is really deep rooted that idea is.
2: Yeah, I probably talked about it on the podcast before but Jennifer Ring has a really great book called Stolen Bases. Blew my mind reading yeah. it. Uh and she's a talking head in the documentary and she's great. Yeah. So I guess that leads perfectly into like my big question at the end which is like how do we change this moving forward? Before the baseball world cup last year, I wrote a piece about why Japan is so good. And they've been so dominant in women's baseball and they have a very different infrastructure. That's true in Australia. You guys talk about that in the documentary as well. Canada now has like an entire infrastructure that the U S is does not have. So what do you guys think is really like, how do we change this moving forward? What do you think, Malika? Like what, what's going to really change this?
4: So it's a tough question to answer. Yeah, and I know that <laughs> there are a lot of different opinions. But if I if I try to boil it down, I, I think of it sort of in in three prongs. One is we we've got to create, continue to create opportunities for girls to play. Sometimes that's going to be with boys, and sometimes that's going to be on all girls or all women's teams. Then we also have to provide the same level of resource and training for girls as they progress through their baseball career because you find a lot of times at at a certain level, the opportunities for boys to get better or men to get better far exceeds what's available to to women. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last thing is awareness. I mean we we really struggle even at the pinnacle of our sport, which is the USA baseball women's national team. We struggle to get attention when we play in the World Cup and when we're competing or to draw fans when we hosted it last summer so awareness not only so that we can change perception about girls and women playing but also so we can set and be that role model for girls who want to play the same way the silver bullets and isla borders were role models for me
2: yeah this idea that there's something to play towards right like that you're you have Mm -hmm. a there's a goal beyond just even making it through high school Jules, do you have anything to add yeah, I and mean, I, I always feel
3: that individuals eventually create systemic change and that it, it's so important that the individual choices that we make, whether that's as a parent or a journalist or a filmmaker or a ball player, you know, eventually will create change. It needs to come both ways, you know, both individuals as well as systems changing. But if we can support the girls around us, if we can, you know, inform the other athletes, the boys around us, the peers of those girls, the coaches of those girls that are playing uh, and help build that support for them. I think that's also going to help. Spreading the word is huge. That's something that we came up against a lot when we were speaking with different coaches and ball players while we were filming is the lack of media coverage. And it was mm-hmm. shocking to us that when the U.S. You know, was winning gold in the Pan Am Games, two Pan Am Games ago, not these past ones from August, there was no media coverage. The only footage that we could find was an iPhone video from I think Scott Whitmore who was wow. one of the one of the baseball dads. Yeah. And Malika, you were there in August, yeah?
4: Yes, I was. How was the media coverage this year? It was about the same as it has been in the past. Though they mm. they did stream the games, which is something um, in the last few tournaments that's started to happen because it's it's so easy to stream nowadays, which is a good start, you know. That's it's at least a way for our family and friends and with a little bit of social media promotion, we've been able to generate some views. So that's exciting, but I, th- I think we're still a long ways away from where we should be. Yeah.
3: So I think now we're getting the access to some of those games through streaming, but it's still being able to inform people. And I think Malika's right on with social media that that again, as individuals is up to people interested in women's baseball to share those posts or share those links and, and support the people around us in supporting those athletes.
2: Great. Well, thank you both for your time. Uh, Jewel, can you tell us more about where people can find Hardball so they can watch it? Yes. So we are going
3: to be releasing uh, digitally September 24th. And if you head to our social media, we'll be making some big announcements. We are at Hardball Film on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we're going to then be premiering September 28th in San Francisco at the Women's Sports Film Festival, where oh, the yay. closing night film. Oh, yeah, yay. we're so excited. So you can get tickets at their website now. Yeah, and then we have our our European premiere, actually, in Milan um, at the FICTS Festival at the end of October. So we have a, a couple big dates coming up. But the digital release is going to be really exciting, and it would be really great for people to keep an eye on that because that helps us on the distribution level.
2: Great. And if you are interested in this topic, the documentary is such a wonderful introduction to not only girls and women in baseball, but these specific players and and what they've done for this sport and to draw attention to it. So, and to represent the USA. So it's a a really lovely film. Thank you both for being here today. Thank Thanks so much, Jessica. Linz, I did want
0: to have an kind of upbeat segment, because I know that we deal with a lot of really hard issues on this show. And I wanted to ask you if there's a kind of like a undersung story happening in sports right now that you're into.
1: Okay, there is, but I didn't realize it had to be happy. <laughs> Of course, so, of course, like,
3: it
0: is burn it all down. Uh, like, it's okay if it's crappy. I just thought it Go was it.
1: underrated. Fair <laughs> Under enough. the radar. That, that doesn't mean happy totally, to me. <laughs> totally fair enough. I didn't follow instructions. Um, but when has that ever stopped me before? So I just like to talk uh, briefly about, and I guess this could have been the burn pile, but something else is in the burn pile this week. And, you know, also this is a more nuanced discussion. And it gives me a chance to talk about the WNBA playoffs again, which obviously I love. But, you know, you brought up earlier that Bill Beer had written this letter to Vegas, kind of pleading for them to support women's basketball. And the reason he had to do that was because for that playoff game last weekend, uh, which was, oh, my God, De'Erica Hamby, oh, my God, that shot she hit. Uh, sorry, this was a second round game between the Chicago Sky and the Las Vegas Aces, and it was phenomenal. But for that game, the Aces could not play in the arena where they've been playing all year, the Mandalay Bay Event Center, because there was a concert of some sort going on. So they had to move about four. I mean, I think it was about 30 minutes away. So from like the strip in Vegas to I think more of the suburbs in Vegas to a much bigger arena than they usually play in. And this is for, you know, the biggest game of their season up until that point. And they're not alone in this. The Los Angeles Sparks will host their semifinal game, possibly games against the uh, Connecticut Sun. Today and because the Emmys they can't play in the Staples Center, so they are having to move homes to I believe Long Beach it is, and you know it's just silly Emmys, silly (laughs) Emmys. But you know I just think it's just so. First of all, the Vegas crowd did show up and that was phenomenal, so yay Vegas. But I think that it just shows that kind of even for the top women's sports, even in their top moments, they're still being treated as these like. Kind of charity cases. (laughs) It's just so infuriating. And I don't know what the 100% solution is, except for just like, I don't know, taking these teams more seriously and taking the potential of them making the playoffs more seriously and that. But I want to give kudos. I guess my kudos is to these players and these teams for being adaptable under really ridiculous circumstances. I want to give kudos to the fans who still show up uh, in these ridiculous circumstances and just everyone who kind of keeps continuing to fight for this not to be the case forever. I have seen so many more people on my timeline who are tweeting about the WNBA these days. And I don't, I think it's because I live in DC and obviously the Mystics are doing so well and I follow so many DC political reporters, but I'm saying like, i see a lot of people who don't usually tweet about the WNBA, like not my WNBA, not the WNBA people I follow, but like in general. And it really does feel like there's this buzz, like there's this momentum um, brewing and there are good things that are happening. And I just want to see it all be a tipping point. I guess another thing I should shout out is that last week, uh, the new WNBA, WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbert commissioned charter flights for the two second round winners to get to Connecticut and Washington, respectively, which is a WNBA first. So another sign that like there are things moving in the right direction. And I think it's so frustrating for me to see these arena moves um, because it feels like it's counter to everything else that's happening in the league at large so I just want to draw a little bit of attention to that and really I just want an excuse to talk about the WBA playoffs some more so <laughs>
0: <laughs> well and and the players are doing so much to kind of connect with fans I saw this whole thing about their dance moves oh my god they're all they're,
1: like wow if you go to a WBA game you will have fun like yes yeah. I
0: mean, it just looks amazing. Like I was just watching all the clips of their dance moves, whether they're like on the bench or like in training. I don't know who put that together, like what genius put that together, but it was it was a sight to be seen. All right. So for me, you know, I'm usually a soccer person and it takes me a little while to get into other sports, even when there's really big stuff happening, but I am determined to understand rugby. It has been a really hard road between (laughs) rugby and I. Like, it's never been an easy relationship. And I know soccer and football comes from rugby. I know it's kind of like the mothership and I should care. And I know the Women's World Cup blew past me last year. And so I'm prepping for the Women's Rugby World Cup in 2021 by understanding it through the men's game. So this is taking place in Japan. It started just this week, September 20th, and it goes through November 2nd. And there's all this heartwarming stuff going on, Uh, particularly I know Shireen loves the New Zealand team, the All Blacks, and I've been watching them too. And in Japan, there's like... A lot of interesting things that the rugby players are responding to. And for Japan, evidently, this is a very big deal because they're hoping it's the first time they move past knockout rounds, like they can use their home team advantage. And they're being coached by former New Zealand player Jamie Joseph. So there's like a connection between these two teams. And one of the interesting things is the issues of tattoos. And I didn't realize how taboo were tattoos. In a lot of Japan. Like, remember, like, my left arm is completely covered, right? And so I didn't realize that they can't go, like, t- tattoos can't be exposed in swimming pools or, like, the collective communal baths or gyms. What would I do in gyms? Like, that's, like, my main place to look cool with tattoos, man. Like, <laughs> kidding. I don't look cool at all. But I had no idea. And it's because they are associated with the criminal mafia Yakuza group. So they've become like a really like no-no. So it's really interesting because the big surprise for a lot of sports journalists, evidently, that really follow rugby has been that the players have self-policed. Like no fines, no threats. New Zealand team is like, you know what? We totally get cultural difference and we're just going to cover them.
1: Mm. <laughs> what is- are
0: what- What What a concept. Like, what a concept. They're like, no, we really respect our hosts. The same with the Samoan players. So when they're on the field, it's a big part of their game. It's a big part of their identity, and they can exhibit them. But the rest of it, they're wearing skivvies, you know, those kind of like long-sleeve nylon thing. So I thought that was really touching. And um, maybe because the US isn't in it, it's just like a less, uh, (laughs) it's a less chauvinistic place about stuff like that. The other thing is they have hakka already happened. The New Zealand team, it's like beautiful. So you can check it out. But then there was like a little debate because South African supporters were singing ole, ole, ole during it. So there's enough like kind of rivalries. Argentina got in some brawl with France. But my other issue is that they're evidently rugby fans drink six times more. I'm getting this from the Asian Review, a real place, six times more than soccer fans. Why are we not at the Rugby World Cup? Like, this has to be amazing to watch. I mean, how can you think...
1: I can't even really, like, when you said it, it didn't even, like, click. Because that's just ridiculous. So
0: there's a fear that Japan is going to have a beer shortage.
1: And the (gasps) World Cup...
0: Yes, the World... (laughs) Listen to this. The World Cup's director held special information sessions for restauranteurs and hoteliers, whatever that word is, in four of the 12 host cities, which were considered possible potential danger zones of a beer shortage.
1: (laughs) That is remarkable.
0: I know. I couldn't believe it. So anyway, just throwing it out there that the the Rugby World Cup is really, really seems like a cool thing so far. I watched the New Zealand-South African game after, not live because it was at 6 a.m. Shireen, our our lovely co-host, did wake up at 6 a.m. to watch it, so she knew what happened before I did. Um, New Zealand won their heavy favorites in the tournament, and yeah, it's pretty cool. That's amazing. Now, it's everybody's favorite segment where we throw something we've hated about sports on the burn pile this week and set it aflame. Lindsay?
1: Yeah, so this will be quick for me, I promise. There was an article in The Athletic this week about a quarterback called Joe Burrow, LSU quarterback, and the lead of the piece, the intro to the piece, is talking about how Burrow was motivated to revamp his his throwing arm his you know throwing style and he was the origin story of this moving tale is urban meyer yelling things at joe burrow uh, such as not enough velocity joe you're a division three quarterback and you throw like a girl (laughs) so First of all, the most obvious burn here is that you throw like a girl is not an insult. And the fact that in this day and age, the leaders of men, as they like to call themselves, are still perpetuating it as such is absolutely disgusting. And my second part of this burn, though, is media who repeats that without countering it, without just as is, like, as, as like, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to be using as a motivational tactic. And, you know, the whole story is, well, hey, that worked, you know, so look, I, you know, I don't want to really, you know, throw this writer under the bus, because I think, you know, he wrote a good story. And I'm sure like, just didn't think about it this much. But I think we all need to think about it more. And I think the media has a responsibility to put things like that in context. And it's frustrating that it's still not happening. And look, if you're not willing to put stuff like that in context, then leave stuff like that out of your pieces. Do you know what I mean? Like, this writer could have just included the not enough velocity, Joe, you're a division three quarterback, right? Because his whole point was that his throwing arm wasn't wasn't cutting it. And he needed to revamp And I understand why he wouldn't want to take a side in his piece to counter sexism. But I think like it's this type of like casual sexism. And it's the allowing it to just sit, in work as is, that just continues to perpetuate women as less and female athletes as less and it's dangerous and I'd like to burn it. Burn! Burn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this week I'm actually going to... Oh, it's so weird. It's like a mix. It's like a burn, but also like a celebratory burn, which is weird. It's a, it's a good, bad mix. I, I There's a lot in global football right now that I hate. And I was going to just throw all the racism and fascism that's happening, which you can just Google, onto the burn pile. But instead, there is breaking news out of Mexico this week on Friday the 20th. Basically, what happened is the 19 Mexican professional clubs of the first division got together and passed a very strong set of steps to get rid of the p chant which is equivalent to the f word in english the homophobic chant that every time the goalkeeper gets near and this chant has spread throughout the americas from mexico so starting with the 2014 world cup and so yay so yay that's awesome that's amazing Thank goodness you're going to stop normalizing homophobic language, which we know has perpetuated violence against LGBTQ people. So yay, yay, yay. But boo, 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 that none of them will admit it's homophobic. So (laughs) so the only reason that they're doing it is literally outlined, we won't get fined by FIFA. And so they're looking towards the 2022 qualifiers and the fair network with whom I work has advised FIFA on this three step process. It was implemented in July. And the hilarious thing is that all the Mexican clubs have done essentially and the national team is pretended that they came up with a policy that actually already exists in FIFA and they have to comply with. And then, and then refuse to acknowledge in any sensitive way that this is homophobic, and they care about vulnerable populations in their community. No, nah, nah, no. it's just it just be that. Could so be that. look, Mexican Federation. It's hard to make FIFA look good. It's real hard, and you're doing it right now. So I want to put that emission, that omission, on the burn pile.
3: Burn. burn.
0: Okay, so after all that burning of just Lynn's and I... <laughs> Which still feels really fiery. Um, We are
1: super fiery. Yeah.
0: We get to celebrate some women's badassery. Women who have accomplished amazing things this week. So, honorable mentions. Go to Elena Deladon, the WNBA 2019 MVP, who averaged 19.5 points per game, 8.3 rebounds. She is the first WNBA player ever in the 50 40 90 club and to win the mvp twice is that right lins to in
1: to win the mvp twice with two different teams with two different teams right that's what it is
0: excellent so congratulations to her Nafisa collier of the minnesota Lynx, won rookie collier. of the year it's, yeah, collier just collier yeah It's not my fault she doesn't pronounce the French, right? I know, I know. You're right, you're right, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Of the Minnesota Lakes won Rookie of the Year in the WNBA. Just kidding, Collier. A shout out to Dereka Hamby of the Las Vegas Aces for her steal and last second three-pointer just past the half-court line to beat the Chicago Sky in the WNBA quarterfinals friend of the show, Alana Myers-Taylor, the U.S. bobsledder who announced earlier this week that she is pregnant and will take next season off. Then the very next day, competed in the women's drivers division at the USA bobsled push championships. Many congratulations. Six weeks after surgery, on her right hand, Adeline Gray won her fifth world wrestling Championship, setting a u.s record alice ty a swimmer from great britain won seven gold medals at the paris swimming world championships cheers to team europe for their win in the golf championship the solheim cup norwegian suzanne Pedersen won it for them on the 18th hole with a birdie and then immediately retired from the sport way to go out Cheers to the Hijabi Ballers, a Muslim women's basketball group in Toronto, who inspired the Toronto Raptor Senior Director for Marketing to create a Raptor-branded hijab, the first of its kind in the NBA. The Hijabi Ballers appear in the team's promotional video for the hijabs, and our own Shireen Ahmed is on the group's advisory board. And can I get a very powerful from you, Lynn? Drumroll! woman of the week goes to Sarah Thomas, a recent cancer survivor who became the first person ever to swim the English Channel four times consecutively, officially swimming 84 miles with currents swim more than like 130. It took her more than 54 hours to do it. Sarah Thomas, you are an inspiration. I am tired after driving 84 miles. And many, many, many well wishes on her continued good health. Yay! Yay!
1: Okay, Lynns, what's good in your week? This week, I am going to a Lizzo concert.
0: (laughs) Oh, again, this is not your first Lizzo concert. This is not
1: my first, but this will be the first in a couple years, so it's at a bigger place, and... I need this night out. So uh, that is what's good. Yay. What
0: about you? What's good for me is um, getting to strategize with Shereen about how to not miss anything in the Champions League and still get my kids from the bus. Yeah, that's always fun. This happens on a yearly basis. It's just where it lands and the time difference. My students are pretty good this week. Like we're still in that romantic period where they haven't started missing too much class and I haven't gotten to grade them too harshly. So we're still having fun. Um, Yeah. And apple picking, lots of apple picking. (gasps) Um, Yeah. Upstate New York, you know, it's, it's time
1: except it's 90 degrees this week. That see that's
0: perfect for me. Like that's cool. All the good things about fall and the temperature no. of summer is like Brenda's happy place. So No,
1: you know what? What I need though if it's 85 degrees or higher, all pools must be open. I don't care what what <laughs> time of the year it is. That should be the rule.
0: Fair enough. That's it for this week, and burn it all down. Though we're done for now, you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise. Uh, Before we we leave the show, we want to give an extra, extra thanks to our Patreons, wonderful people, our flamethrowers who let us do the work that we want to do every single week with their support, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We do appreciate all your reviews and feedback on whatever platform. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Pod, and at Twitter at Pod. You can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and links to that Patreon. I'm Brenda Elsie, on behalf of Lindsay Gibbs and myself, burning on but not out.